Welcome to the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé, a health and science reporter. Join me as we cover advancements being made in health informatics and explainable AI for students, researchers, and healthcare practitioners interested in applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning. This podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory at the University of Pittsburgh School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. Headed by Ahmed Tafdi, Pitt's Hex AI Lab cultivates extramural collaborations with academic institutions both nationally and internationally through its research, educational contributions, and this podcast series. Hello and welcome back to Pitt Hex AI, a podcast series produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health and Explainable AI Research Laboratory. I'm Brent Phillips. Normally, I work behind the scenes on producing our interviews. Today, I'm going to guest host a special discussion with Vivek Nellur, who is a lecturer and assistant professor of computer science at the University College Dublin. Vivek is particularly interested in machine ethics, AI governance and explainable AI, and questions like how to implement and verify ethics in autonomous machines. We've been thinking about doing an upcoming interview looking at the work of family caregivers. And because family caregivers often turn to technology for assistance, I thought I'd interview Vivek on short notice to learn about his work and about a paper he just collaborated on looking at ethical challenges for elder care robots and use the opportunity to broadly discuss ethics and explainable AI relevant to healthcare, for example. So welcome, Vivek. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. To get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us about your background and what got you first interested in computer science and machine ethics? Thank you. It's great to be here. I came into computer science a bit late in my career. I started off in advertising, and then I realized that it's, it's not really satisfying. Anyway, I sort of went from India and to the US. I did my master's in Carnegie Mellon and then worked in San Francisco. And then, and then I did my PhD. And then academia, I suppose entering academia is a bit of a disillusioning wave that sweeps over you. You, you realize that, you know, you spend most of your time grant writing and then, and then administering those grants instead of actually doing the thing that you want. And the research is mostly all done by the PhD students and the postdocs. So I think I was interested in autonomous machines and my PhD is on decentralized self-adaptation. And I veered into ethics because of something I read from an American assistant professor's blog where says, well, given that the state of academia is mostly about grant writing and things like that, pick a field that will keep you up at night. And then at least, at the very least, you know, even if your student is doing the work, the question is personally important to you. And that's how I thought, well, what do I care about? And I think, okay, well, given that I'm looking at autonomous systems, well, when autonomous systems act, how should they act? And what is the impact that they have on human beings? Because ultimately, all of these are in service, hopefully, of human beings and not just some other abstract end you know, more efficiently, which is nice, but in the limit, it should be for human beings in society and, well, the planet, I suppose, but but at the very least, human beings. I like that. My father was actually a professor, and I um, I think being a kid, I didn't really appreciate what his life was like, but he ended up being a department head, and I, 
I remember a lot of things that didn't seem like grading papers and teaching classes and a lot of administrative work. And uh, I was going to ask you next what you teach at university college, like what subjects? So I teach the second years, the third years, and the fourth years. So for the fourth years, I teach machine learning, an introductory course on machine learning. So it's very beginnings, introductions of models and decision trees and support regression and things like that and Bayesian networks. For one of the others, I teach operating systems and web programming. You know, I was just going to mention that I, um, I lived in San Francisco for a while, and I do remember there was a big interest in autonomous systems at Berkeley. I remember a paper talking about autonomous robots and how do they communicate. And nowadays, you know, thinking about the AI age and small scale devices and how do they communicate with each other. And one of the things we are interested in thinking about family caregivers is their reliance on devices and data collection. And it's an interesting field and you have the information and how do you analyze it and make determinations about people's health then you start to look at the ethics of it. We think about explainability and how do you explain that it's actually reading the right thing, but ethics is a whole other flip side of the coin. And what are your thoughts on caregiving and machine ethics? And I'm getting us distracted already. I was going to ask you more about your classes. I think caregiving is very different from a machine ethics point of view. Because traditionally, at least most of the Western research or most of the research that I've seen has focused on what I'd like to say are West of Rome philosophies, like Kantian ethics and Hume and utilitarianism and all of that. And there's very few things that you read about Ubuntu, for example, or the Indian schools of thought on what it means to be in a community and what's the right thing to do, or the Confucian ethics of family. And so, and which seems to be, to me, to be a singular gap. I mean, that's something that we absolutely have no idea of in terms of what it would mean to implement something like that in a machine. So even within the, let's say, more understood or at least most discussed, ethical systems of thought, it doesn't actually translate very well to caregiving. And that's been sort of discussed at length in feminist ethics and, and care ethics. And, and then you have the sort of more specialized field of healthcare ethics, because they are somehow more absolutist in the sense of, if you take pure utilitarianism, for example, you're trying to say, well, maximize utility. And human beings don't do that. And if they don't do that, there's a reason why they don't do that. Maybe we're not interested in why they don't do that, but the fact remains we don't do that. And with regard to deontological things such as, you know, rule-based systems of thought and say, well, the golden rule and so on and so forth, again, it works for most things. But when we think of caregiving, we don't think of justice or we don't think of, you know, social level values we think of interpersonal values and that's something that has what care ethics sort of focuses on and ai hasn't focused on it as much as far as i can tell which means that it's really dangerous when we think of ai and we just apply it to healthcare because there's one way where you say well we apply ai to diagnostics so it becomes the the version of a better x-ray machine or a better mri machine or a better 
and a scalpel. And that's, you might say, okay, it's just a better tool. But when it starts to make decisions about what next, what kind of treatment to give, and who should this information be released to, how much of it should be released, all of that starts to inform our social relations, which are ethics. And so we need to be thinking about it, which I think is missing. That's a good point. You know, looking at explainability, we often think about, you know, imagery. It's sort of a go-to use case. It's looking yeah. at imagery and looking at data on um, even a movement, like patient movement. There's a lot of work being carried out right now looking at, well, how is the patient, how do they seem? What, what are their, what's their temperature and their blood pressure? How does that correlate with, with other factors? And, and thinking about just ethics and how do you interact with people and how do you treat them with dignity and respect and thinking about dementia and, you know, mental health, that it seems like ethics is very relevant. Is machine ethics more relevant to one type of healthcare versus another? Or, you know, it's sort of an arbitrary question. So in AI ethics, you know, you have different standards of okay. ethics. And maybe you could give us an example of some of them that you're using to help shape your your ideas of how to train models to train themselves to act more ethically all right so i think like i mentioned i'm interested in care ethics because well a because there's not much tension on it and i believe there should be so the principal use case that we're applying it to is i think the paper that you mentioned about the set of elder care ethical challenges for elder care robots that's a, a collaboration that I'm doing with a colleague in Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. They have the robots. We are looking at the ethical aspects of it. And it's been interesting because initially at the start of the collaboration, it was really difficult for me to convince them that there needs to be any investigation into the ethics. And they were like, my focus is on, like you said, figuring out if the patient, if the elderly patient needs assistance and there's very limited kinds of assistance that a real robot in real situations can provide they can hand medicines or remind you to take food remind you to assist in making tea for example here yeah, making tea is, a, is an important activity so it was really hard to convince them that there is a need for ethical investigation in such robots but now i think they're coming out to the view that many decisions have ethically charged implications I'll give an example. One of the robots that they work with is called the telepresence robot. A telepresence robot enables the family to be present with the patient, the elderly person who is living in an assisted uh, living facility. So they're physically away, but the family can, whenever they want, and whenever they have the time, not have to drive down to wherever this assisted living facility is, but still be with them and see what they see and so on and so forth. Now, one might think that this is fairly benign. I mean, it's my father, my grandfather, and what possible ethical problems could there be? But if the patient or the elderly patient is going to the toilet, should the robot turn out its camera? What if they're not in the toilet, but they're talking to someone else? Who is uncomfortable? That person is uncomfortable. So should the robot now decide that I'm in company and my company's rights or feelings, preferences matter more than the person who's calling. 
what to do. What if it's not the family, but the caregiver who's calling to check on the patient? Is it a regular call? Is it a, a call? Because last night's medical statistics sensors that you sort of gather data from, they don't look particularly good. Now, there's an emergency situation. There's a non-emergency, but still concerning situation versus a completely regular, well, we'll just check in. So it's just simple things like privacy and autonomy. And if does the elderly patient themselves have the autonomy to say, I don't want to see my daughter right now. I'm not in the mood. What should the robot do? Right. And it's in a real life situation. This is something for the two human beings to negotiate. It's, it's a part of who we are as human beings who live in a society to negotiate these interpersonal things. And to let that decision be made by a machine means that either the machine should understand what this relationship is and therefore act accordingly or, or the human being still needs to make a decision. But as you mentioned, I mean, increasingly people are turning to robots or assistive technologies because of the scale of the problem. There's just not enough. Care workers to go around, and, you know, the health workers are, you know, highly stressed. And so are families. I mean, the pace of life is just that there's not enough time to, you know, spend with one's family as one would like. So it's become urgent issues. So I guess I'm trying to come up with a solution to it, not to me the solution, because I think one of the things that we need as computer scientists is to be a little more humble about claiming what a solution is without in involving the patient. I was thinking about my own mother. My own mother had dementia. And I remember yeah. the biggest problem was that she would get anxious and, you know, insecure and anxious, and she just needed to be reassured. Yeah. But as a robot, you could easily, I mean, you know, you if you have a, a voice agent there in the house to reassure her, you know, you're right, there's ethical considerations with that because it's monitoring her the whole time. And, you know, hey, mom, how are you doing? That kind of thing. And it could actually make her confused and more stressed. Right. Which reminds me, I noticed another paper that you wrote. It's quite interesting that you're looking at anxiety amongst migrants. And you looked at the data and just the question of that. And how do you, how do you turn that into a machine learning model? What could you look at and what you can measure and maybe could you walk us through that paper and just the thinking behind it? I think that paper has a very few, if any, any answers at all. In fact, the paper is just full of questions of, well, there's, this is how computer scientists think about emotions in general and anxiety specifically. And this is how psychologists think about it. And this is how cognitive scientists well, it's at least arguably a more modern approach to the brain, right, and emotions and how they think about it. And there seems to be no intersection or at least agreement. The computer scientists, I think, are currently, papers I've read, seem to follow the psychologists primarily because they are computationally simpler. But that doesn't mean they're better. Simplicity is good, but not necessarily the only thing to look at. First thing is correctness. So in that, I think paper all I'm, all I'm saying is it's a plea for help rather than anything else saying we need to learn how to model this 
And then we need to figure out how to model this for multiple people and knock on effects as well. I mean, like you mentioned, the mother had, had anxiety. Um, and we know now that um, if, you're, if you're in a calming presence, you feel calm. But if you're in the presence of someone who's anxious, that also gets transmitted. So now your decision-making is affected by somebody else whose state of mind you have no very little control over. And I think there was some uh, study over how we make decisions. And, and it was, I think, something of the upwards of 90% is essentially automatic decision-making. Uh, or at least subconscious decision making. So if that is the case, then we need to understand how society is impacted by by us making rules. For example, I think one of the things that was brought home really vividly to us is when governments fairly recently implemented lockdown rules for the pandemic and how that impacted little things like panic over toilet paper. I mean, in hindsight, it seems absolutely silly, but those people are not idiots. They're not. They just were anxious about things that mattered to them, and, and they reacted. And then that reaction feeds, and we didn't see that coming. I mean, toilet paper now seems laughable, but that has, you can extrapolate that to food, you can extrapolate that to over-the-counter medicines, and who knows, even vaccinations, because you're impacted by what you read, and emotions are transmitted. I was just going to ask you about that. It's interesting. You mentioned AI governance. That's another paper that you worked on. And, you know, the government, the city council is, they'll be the first ones to start thinking about as soon as these technologies start rolling out and thinking about, again, family caregiving, you know, hey, we need a, a regulation on this and we need to monitor that. And, and you still haven't worked out how to actually measure, you know, on the explainabilities, you know, they're demanding explainability around ethics. Right. And this is, as you said, I think we're all in the same boat right now. Technology is moving so fast and, and we're still thinking about it. Maybe we're not ready for, for governance yet because we're just trying to sort out how to, how to make the robots work to decide if they're good or bad. But what, what's your take on the, what do they call it, the chicken and the egg situation with governance and ethics and explainability and trust? Sure. I think... From a governance point of view, the most necessary parts, I suppose, is control, right? In some sense of health of people, of subjects, of the trial, subjects of any experiment. And well, in society, are there, are there health rights being violated, right? We want to keep populations as healthy as possible. And then there's safety. Are we subjecting people to unnecessary risk? And then there's rights, which is that you have a right to privacy, you have a right to autonomous decision-making, you have a right to decide where you want to live and all sorts of things. So these are the sort of three things, major things that governments think about when, when we think about regulation and policy, apart from other things about economy and, and things. The problem, it seems to me, that is that when we demand explainability, the the question is, why do we want explainability? And it's because we don't trust the machine to give the right answer. And the example that comes to mind in contrast to this is that most people don't know about the IEEE standard for floating point arithmetic, right? And yet, financial traders use computers every day to do like lots of complicated maths. And we 
we don't demand explainability from the machine when it says this is the number. Right? We trust that someone has worked out, and if you implement it correctly, then all subsequent decisions made or at least calculations based on that will give you the correct answer, or at least the globally acceptable correct answer. But we don't have that with social problems. And because of that, we need a bit more interrogatability, right? Explainability in the sense of it's not just how the model did it, how the calculation happened, but why did that calculation happen? Why was another calculation not done? And I think explainability is a consequence, the demand for explainability is a consequence of a lack of trust. If you could say that this machine will work in the best interest of humanity and you could prove it, at that point, well, if I trust you, then that's it. I trust the machine. But that's not the case right now. And so then we end up with explainability problems where we say, okay, because we are in this sort of uh, the deep learning wave of AI, right, which is characterized more, uh, I mean, if you look at it sort of in an abstract way, it's more intuition-like than logic-like. And whereas logic is something that we've taken 200 years to figure out step by step, this is how we start from the premise. These are all the assumptions. And if we end up with this conclusion, we trust that it is always correct. And the intuition-based or the connectionist mechanism is completely the other way around. We've integrated somehow millions of parameters and this seems to be the right answer. And it's, it is the right answer many times. It just isn't many other times and we don't know how to distinguish between the two so now we say okay well how did you arrive at this answer so what data did you use what data did you not use why and and then well how do the how do you know the model is correct can you explain that so i think for me the field of explainable ai is currently looking at model explainability which is not quite the same as explainability and um, why was this data chosen? The data explainability part, the model explainability part, and the the post hoc explanations of what did the machine think is the reason, right? It could be that the machine did the, absolutely the correct calculation, came up with the right answer, but explained it incorrectly. Now, what do you do? That's a good point. You're right. I think we're just growing problems. So I, I found your work last week, and I, I was just so excited by it. I, I thought we'd just got to interview this guy right away. And um, one of the papers that I did, another thing that I noticed, it was just an interesting concept, was the idea of towards an ethics audit bot, another paper that you worked on. But the idea of, yeah. well, the way I, what came to my head was the idea of you create these bots and you send them out to evaluate how the ethics, how things ethically work. And you mm -hmm. You could have these trove of bots checking every aspect of health, health mm -hmm. mathematics and, and uses of AI and your large language models and how they're performing based on health queries. And it's an interesting idea in terms of monitoring and helping to regulate this by just using these army of bots or whatnot to, to help out. But tell me what the paper is really about and what, what are your thoughts on the subject? I think that was sort of inspired by a conversation that we had that the software industry, I mean, since the 70s, 
or 60s even as we're talking about testing and testing and we know we didn't do it we know it was the right thing to do but we didn't because it was so annoying to test like a huge thing but as soon as we started creating automated test suites then we start saying hey actually it's easy to do so it's it's not defensible to not do it anymore right so now in any good software company you have to have unit tests and integration tests and system tests and all sorts of things all run at every git commit or checking of code right and the idea is not that testing solves removes all the bugs that but it removes or it flags the bugs that are predicted right like we know that these could be problems can we check for them for unknown unknowns we don't know how to do any kind of checking anyway so the intuition is the same thing can we push for i mean the field of uh, process tracing right is say how how does this process work if you apply for a loan and things like that and how many people are involved what is the data involved in and the same thing for all kinds of systems when you when a patient approaches the first point of medical care what data is used who's involved and you can sort of see this data being recorded at each stage can we also record what was the the answers to the ethical questions that were asked at that point and the whole iso standards intuition is that if you follow a defined process then by and large you're sort of you're not guaranteed but it is likely that you caught all the bad obviously bad things and the this is the ethics bot the audit bot was a step towards looking at it that way say okay can the bot check that you've done these have you have you gone through this checklist have you gone has somebody signed off like if someone has signed off on it then presumably somebody looked at the checklist so i think the the ai architect or the statutory profession idea links in with that audit bot thing where you're saying that someone responsible signs off and that person is empowered by law to say this doesn't pass right it's just going to ask you about that you know I, i've been going i've got a list here of your, your papers and uh, i didn't put them in order but <laughs> i uh, <laughs> but now you, I, you you mentioned that concept of having a statutory professional who mm -hmm. helps to monitor the ethics ethical the explainability of these models but maybe you could let, let's talk about that for a minute because you you, you brought it up but mm -hmm. that's an inter interesting idea i was going to ask you earlier before i got us distracted about you know just career fields for students and mm -hmm. courses and you know the, it's easy to think that we can easy you know nowadays it's getting easier to work with large language models and things like that but obviously you still need to go to school and learn how to do it mm -hmm. because it's still highly sophisticated but the idea of what is the idea of having a statutory professional in AI governance? And, uh, you know, maybe you could just outline your thoughts on the subject and maybe the qualifications of that person. Right. So that is work being done by one of my students, Alicia. She's actually a, a practicing legal professional. So the idea there is that a statutory professional is a person well, is a requirement in many domains. We already have doctors, lawyers, accountants, um, 
even building certifiers and assessors and things like that, fire safety regulations. So there are people who are experts in checking whether the rules have been followed, right? Or, or standards have been met. So standards are essentially typically voluntarily accepted either through a de facto or de jure, right? Either someone says, well, if you don't meet this standard, I mean, let's go back to testing, for example. If, if your company didn't do any testing, then you don't, you're not a good enough company for us to contract to. So it becomes economically uh, infeasible not to do that. So if you have a, a, and to make sure that that happens, society has come up with this thing saying corporations have a incentive to bend the law, let's say, not necessarily to break it, but to bend it to their advantage. And because of the way corporations are structured, the whole notion of liability is sort of wished away. Uh, there is no person responsible. It is the corporate person that's responsible. And even though we know that if actually people who take the decisions, somehow the corporation is responsible. I mean, the corporation is not really, and you can't pierce the corporate veil that easily. But to get around that or sort of to rein that in impulse in is this statutory professional who is required to be employed by these corporations and is also required to have a certain minimum set of qualifications and is also registered typically with a board or an association in every country that's slightly different. And that board is empowered to then say, you didn't do your job, regardless of whether the company that employs you thinks you did it or not. So in a sense, it's both limiting and empowering because the the professional can say, even though it is in the company's best business interest to let something happen, it may not be according kosher according to the law, right? And so they can refuse to sign off and the company cannot penalize them for it. That's the social contract or the socio-legal contract. At the same time, the person who is in the company is embedded in the company. So they know the, the intentions, like the good intentions behind which you know, behind the product. And, and so some, supposing someone came out with a healthcare AI, something, right? Diagnosing, I don't know, retinopathy. Retinopathy came to my mind because I read an article about someone doing something like that in India where they're using smartphones to check whether you're in the high-risk category or not so much because that the penetration of smartphones is is quite high even in rural areas. But the because they're in a rural area, the act of going to a healthcare center could mean a day's wages, and which means they either put it off until till the cost to society and to themselves is quite high, or they go and it's a false positive and you know you've lost a day's wages. So in those kind of fields, I can see the potential for this to at least be an aid in decision making. I say, okay, maybe you should go, or oh, it's fine, you know, probably a false alarm. So that may be the intention in creating an AI, right? But what data was used? How was that data stored? Who has access to it? Are all things that um, the company is making that decision about? And there might be ethical principles in play, uh, problems, ethically charged decisions that the software is making. And someone needs to take responsibility for it. So then, you can explain, provide explanations to human beings because the explanation you provide to the patient is not the same explanation that you provide to the technician or the explanation that you provide to a medical professional. 
And if you provide the same explanation to all three stakeholders, then at least one of them is going to be completely disappointed, right? Or confused. Well, I was just thinking this is almost the future of explainability. Like we're looking, again, we're at the forefront of all of this and mm -hmm. this vantage point. Yeah. You know, we're, we're maybe uh, next year we're going to, this is going to be a career field and we're going to see this uh, required by law. And I, I don't think many of us even thought about these aspects of explainability and trust and governance and ethics. Right. And uh, I, I think, you know, thinking about universities, our university and your university, and I, I think we might be the ones who help to shape how this looks through collaboration and thinking about these ideas such as you're doing in Ireland. So yeah. I, I think it's great. It's amazing. It's great what you're doing. And I'm, I'm glad we found your work because it's, a, sure. it's another aspect of explainability and of health informatics and AI. Thank you for reaching out to me. UCD is actually thinking about for the next year to close to the upcoming one to make changes in the curriculum. But we want to introduce a formal undergraduate level module thinking about the ethics of a software system. And so students have at least an opportunity to be exposed to questions that they ought to be thinking about when designing things. I've been asked if I would lead that. We'll see what actually happens. Yeah. Well, I hope you do lead it. We have a closing question that we'd like to sure. ask everybody, and it's to offer a student a research project idea. Like, what would you love to see a student work on? But as you mentioned, that you spend more time living vicariously through your students, through their projects. Right. What's a great research project idea, either that you would love to personally work on or one that you'd love to see one of your students work on? One is ethical preference elicitation. Right now, all we do is we say, what's your philosophy about? And most people come up with something that they've read about, or and it may not be reflected in what they actually do. So, so their feelings about someone following their own philosophical preferences might not be quite satisfactory. So how do we get to the real ethical preferences that you have? And then negotiating that with other stakeholders who are quite close to you, right? So that's one aspect. The other is um, continual learning about ethics. So my preferences when I was a teenager are quite different to in my 20s, in my 30s, and now, right, my 40s. And that's, again, a fact of life. So if we expect an autonomous machine to deal with that, um, I may have expressed something, especially like in the use case that you mentioned with uh, dementia. It's a progressive thing. And what happens at different stages, even other things, such as, I mean, let's say, just say diabetes, India has a lot of diabetes patients and their preferences when they're 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 are, are quite different. So how do we reconcile that? How do we take that into account in decision making? It would be a great project to do. Thank you so much. This is one of my favorite parts of our interviews because, you know, students, they all look for ideas. And, yeah. and you know, I think students all want to know where the cutting edge is and where right. they can make a contribution to, to advancing the field. And right. it's good to think about project ideas and who's doing what. And 
I, I really appreciate that idea, that input. We like to close by asking you to offer a shout out about your university, but you mentioned this new program and this is what a cool idea. Is there anything else you'd like to share about what you're working on or what, what you'd love students to do or you'd love them to join you with the lab or give us a call to action here? A general call to action, I think, is it's a drum that I've been trying to beat is the interdisciplinarity of this. Computer science is, is a part of the solution. It is not the solution. So we need to talk to real people, right? And by that, I mean people with different roles and different power, and, uh, structural power and institutional power. And so whenever we think of a solution, it has to be in collaboration with Let's say the person who has the least power, but somehow the product is for them, right? So that I think could be at the forefront of system design. And I think if, if more and more computer scientists thought of that, then I think we might end up with at least services that uh, have to circle back to where we started off with, you know, the systems for people as opposed to people who need to fit around machine problems. What a great yeah. takeaway. I, I love that. Again, I really appreciate you offering to do this on short notice, this interview. Mm -hmm. and, uh, no problem. Thank you again. Thanks everyone for tuning in and for following the show. The Health Unexplainable AI podcast is produced by the University of Pittsburgh's Health Unexplainable AI Research Laboratory at University of Pittsburgh's School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences Department of Health Information Management. I'm Jordan Gospore. Thanks for listening.